0: You're listening to a GDP Roadshow podcast on the Global Development Primer. GDP Roadshows are recorded live on location at conferences, meetings, and occasionally through chance encounters. No doubt many of us around the world are locked in and locked down amid the COVID-19 pandemic. During this difficult and uncertain time, the GDP podcast is delighted to bring you a series of roadshow podcasts with help from the McEachern Institute of Public Policy at Dalhousie University and the Canada International Council, Halifax Branch. These podcasts come from a virtual panel hosted by the CIC and the McEachern Institute who brought together a virtual panel of experts in public health, risk governance, respiratory viruses, and global health to discuss the current COVID-19 outbreak and its impacts. For the complete panel and the presenter slides, please follow the YouTube link embedded in this podcast. But for now, on GDP, we're pleased to offer you five roadshow podcasts about the COVID-19 virus. The first podcast comes from Gaynor Watson Creed. Dr. Watson Creed is the Acting Deputy Chief Medical Officer of Health for the province of Nova Scotia and served on the One Nova Scotia Coalition. She's a dedicated leader and is passionate advocate for the role public health can play in advancing health equity. She's a Dalhousie medical school's first assistant dean in a brand new portfolio serving an engaging society. with well, no further ado, let me introduce you to Dr. Galen Watson-Creed here on a GDP Roadshow podcast.
1: Hi, everybody. I hope you can hear me okay. Uh, and thank you uh, to the CIC and the McKechn Institute for this opportunity this evening. Um, I have to admit, in all of the sort of haste to... Um, deal with the coronavirus outbreak, I've not not prepared anything uh, specific for this evening to start the panel, but in having a conversation uh, with Dr. Quigley before uh, today, you know, I thought it might be an opportunity to give the folks who were uh, watching an opportunity to see just a little bit of sort of what happens behind the scenes when an outbreak is being managed, Um, and so that's what I'm going to try and explain to you today. I um, have had the opportunity now to be a part of three pandemics in my public health career, which seems crazy to me. And I always said when I was doing my residency, um, I started my residency in public health and medicine in 1999 at McMaster University. And I had always said that that seemed to be just the opportune time to learn public health medicine, because during that time, there was uh, certainly SARS, but uh, there was the the walkerton inquiry there was um, all of the events around 9 11 and all of the uh concern there was about agents of bioterror at that time um there were anthrax scares at that time and so it just and the whole world was doing pandemic influenza planning at that time and so it felt like it was this fantastic crucible for learning um about how the world organizes around uh events like a like a pandemic. And so I was in Toronto for the SARS outbreak. Um, I was a resident at McMaster University, and we joke as residents that uh, outbreaks start at 4.30 on a Friday, because they actually do. And so I was leaving uh, the health unit in uh, in Hamilton, Ontario, when the medical officer of health there at the time, who was Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, she's still there, um, sort of waved me in and said, you need to come into my office right now. And the entire of Ontario Public Health was on the phone and Toronto Public Health was describing what they were seeing and what they thought they would need, which in the short term was actually uh, negative pressure rooms and ICU beds. And I felt like my whole world kind of imploded um, to hear for the first time and to understand the concern and fear that those medical officers were holding for their communities at that time. Um, and how quickly folks were trying to mobilize. And I learned at that time that although we had been in all of these plans about pandemic and about uh, managing smallpox and anthrax at that time, all of it kind of got thrown out. And we were able to take the bones of it and use it to shape the SARS response. But real life actually doesn't follow the plan. And that was probably the biggest learning that I had from that SARS outbreak. And by the way, the file that I was assigned to at the Ontario Ministry, very glamorous, was uh, SARS in sewage and whether or not sewage could be a risk of transmission for SARS. So that's what I worked on uh, for my time at the ministry. Um, But it was an interesting learning to see that real life doesn't follow the plan. And so although the world knew what, you know, in some ways what to expect from our study of previous pandemics and, and how they were managed, there was also so much about that event that we just could not have predicted. And so it went the way it went. Fast forward to uh, me coming landing in the province of Nova Scotia and, um, in 2005 and being a newly minted medical officer of health. Uh, and my first outbreaks here being uh, mumps of all things, but a massive mumps outbreak that actually ended up seeding the entire country. Um, and I'm still apologizing for that uh, to this day. Um, and then in 2009, we had H1N1. Um, And Halifax, Nova Scotia, Windsor, Nova Scotia was the first jurisdiction in Canada to experience H1N1 at that time. We were the first jurisdiction in Canada to declare that we were seeing what we believed was a novel pandemic uh, influenza or a novel influenza of pandemic potential. Um, And if folks remember at the time, there were reports coming out of Mexico where we were hearing things like, there's an illness and the CDC has sent their investigative team down there and the Public Health Agency of Canada had sent field epidemiologists there and folks were wondering what was happening in Mexico. And all of a sudden, uh, it popped up in Windsor, Nova Scotia, in this group of students that had returned from a trip to Mexico. Uh, And so we were into um, a novel influenza strain that became a pandemic uh, that year. And once again, I was reminded of the lesson that real life does not follow the plan. We had done so much pandemic planning between, you know, 2000 and 2009, that we all getting ready for this after SARS um, in 2003. And then here we were, on a, um, sorry, apologies. <clears throat> on top of everything else, I also happen to have a cold, which is not COVID, um, and that I blame entirely on my children. Um, so we... Um, So here we were sort of managing H1N1 uh, at that time and and looking to the lessons that we had learned from those other events that we had been involved in, but again, realizing that there was so much of it that we had to deal with uh, on the fly. And here in Halifax, Nova Scotia, you know, nobody had predicted, all of the models for pandemic had said at at that point that we would be looking at um, avian influenza, which was emerging in Asia at that time, and that that pandemic would likely start on the west coast of Canada, and would move east um and that is not at all what happened nobody was looking at swine flu from south america um, or central america and certainly was not looking at halifax nova scotia as the first uh, site in canada uh, to experience this and so again real life didn't follow the plan uh and so now here we are in 2020 dealing with uh coronavirus and i feel like again those same lessons um, apply. You know, this is the one of all of those, you know, sort of previous ones that I've talked about. We looked at things like social distancing and mass gathering uh, cancellations and what could we do to sort of limit the spread along those lines and would it work, would school closures work, that type of thing. And folks will recall some of those conversations for H1N1 and we actually decided in looking at that virus and how it was tracking and in which populations that actually school closures were not an appropriate thing to do and actually the best way to track illness in school children for that particular one might be to keep them in school. So we could see how it was tracking in, in those populations. This is a completely different event than that. And so here we are uh, looking at this novel coronavirus. It's not an influenza virus, which is what our pandemic plans uh, revolved around. And again, seeing that real life um, doesn't follow the plan. Having said that, there are some things about this outbreak that are, um, in keeping with what we know about outbreak management. And it's the places that my colleagues and I fall back to um, whenever we're faced with something new. It's how we know how to do our jobs. It's how we know how to um, manage the outbreak to the the best that we can. And so I'm just gonna bring up a a few slides uh, just just to share with you um, what those things are. So if any of you have seen me uh, give lectures on outbreak management before, you will have seen uh, me use these slides. Um, This is the list of steps in an outbreak that you will see from agencies like the World Health Organization or CDC Atlanta. And they often uh, present the list exactly like this, and it looks very linear. It almost looks like it's in order, right? So the first thing you do is you prepare for your field work. So that's the work that you're going to do, finding cases, managing contacts of cases, figuring out who the contacts are, and and sort of uh, mapping out the chain of transmission of the disease. So you prepare for that work and then you establish that there actually is an outbreak that you need to investigate so sometimes it looks like an outbreak and when you because it looks like it's transmitting to multiple people and then when you actually see it you go actually it's confined to a small group of people and it's not going to go any further than that and so we can stand down and then you verify the diagnosis so that you know what exactly what it is that you're tracking and then you define and identify your cases You describe and orient the data that you're collecting in terms of time, place, and person. That's the basis of our epidemiologic work that we do. You develop hypotheses around what you think is happening, where you think the transmission is gonna go next. You evaluate those hypotheses and refine them. You carry out additional studies. You implement your control and prevention measures and communicate your findings. So that's what the CDC Atlanta often uh, uh, puts out as sort of the steps of outbreak management. Students of epidemiology will learn these as the steps of uh, outbreak management. And it's a good list. We do all of those things um, when we're managing network. But what I find interesting is that impl- implement and control prevention—sorry, implement, control, and prevention measures—is listed as step nine here. And it's not meant to be a step-by-step list, but it's a funny positioning of it because in real life, uh, certainly what what we see and and. Certainly what I always practice is this. So this is a framework that I was taught actually as a resident in in Ontario, um, when I was learning about all of this in that context, SARS, Walkerton, and everything else. And what you'll see public health agencies do is this. When we figure out that something is happening in our communities, the first thing that we will do is put in place control measures. That's the sex here um, in the third line down. We'll start our investigation after. that, And the reason is simple. You wanna put in place the control measures as early as you can to prevent as many people as possible from transmitting the disease onward. And so before we know anything else, as soon as we know that we've got a communicable disease at at play, it's often, you know, these are the phone calls that we're making to each other and to our public health staff at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock at night when we first get a call about a communicable disease, if it's really serious, we'll call the staff and say, please get in touch with that patient and let them know that they can do this, but they can't do these things. They can go here, but they can't go to this place. Please let them know that they need to, um, you know, remove themselves from these family members and they can't go to work the next morning, that type of thing. We'll put those control measures in first. That gives us the time to figure out what else we might need to do in our investigation in order to manage the rest rest of the outbreak. So, Real life looks more like this. It looks more like this, you know, sort of this grid of different activities that might be happening happening concurrently. They might be happening at different points in time. They will continue late into the outbreak. Um, But of all the things on this, uh, on this grid, the one that is the most important and the most difficult to do, maybe not to do well, but I would say the most difficult to get right. In fact, impossible to ever get truly right is this one, uh, communicate. So often you will find in outbreaks, um, folks are looking for information, especially if it's a, you know, something like this, where the entire world is affected. Everybody wants to know almost at every minute what's happening right now, what's happening next. The problem is that while we you know, in public health appreciate the need for that information, we're doing this middle X of investigating. We're trying to find out the answers to those questions. And so the lag time between the investigation and the communication can cause frustration, certainly for communications officials, but it's critically important that we understand that so we know what control measures to put in place next to stay ahead of the outbreak for as long as we can. So when I'm teaching outbreak management, I often say to residents, you know, you will all have a critique of the communication plan that was used for this outbreak, or the communication plan that was used for that outbreak. And some of those critiques will be valid, And my advice is don't ever expect to get the communication right because the things evolve rapidly, they will change, and that trying to keep up with that um, is really only going to be about just doing the best that you can. Uh, And so I I tend to use this grid more than the CDC list because I find it's a more realistic picture of how the outbreak actually unfolds. It's never linear, it's often multiple activities happening at once to get uh, ahead of the outbreak. But we do in every outbreak, and this is the same uh, with with this one with coronavirus, we fall back to our basic tools, our basic good foundational epidemiologic science that drives how we manage outbreaks. We collect line lists, which are the lists of uh, affected persons and their contacts and information about them, like what were their symptoms? When did the symptoms start? So we can get a sense of who is this affecting? Who is it not affecting? And if we can get a sense of that, then we know who to look out for next in that affected group. so that we can stay ahead of that outbreak again. We use that information uh, to to generate epidemic curves, uh, which are those fancy sort of uh, curves that show, and folks would have seen these, for example, the the curve in China, which is now back to baseline, that show basically how the epidemic has tracked over time. Um, We use maps and mapping, and this has been uh, an extraordinary uh, addition to this particular outbreak worldwide, is the degree of mapping that's being supported by the WHO, and folks will have seen the online uh, coronavirus tracker from uh, Hopkins University in the U.S., that, uh, from Johns Hopkins, that um, is really showing in real time, they're updating it multiple times a day, where the uh, outbreak is and how it's going in those uh, various affected countries. We've talked a lot about this, this uh, particular notion of the R-naught, um, which is the reproductive rate of the organism at play, so how quickly does one infection become multiple infections in a group of people, that type of thing. Uh, attack rates is a similar notion. So what proportion of the uh, population is likely to be affected, we look at that. And then in some cases, we're able to in- implement case control studies, not so much for an outbreak like this, but certainly for foodborne outbreaks, we'll often do that um, to uh, to see if we can get a sense as to what the source of the outbreak was. But in this particular case, we haven't had the need to do that in part because the out- the, the source is, is relatively evident now. So we're still relying on our basic tools in, in this one. Uh, And of course, we're doing all of this to do this flattening of the curve that folks have heard so much about. And I was in an interesting conversation today with some uh, colleagues from across the country. We've been meeting twice a week, sometimes more frequently, to talk about the outbreaks in our different provinces and where do we think we need to go next as a country. And we have all been focused on this notion of flattening the curve, but we had one colleague from BC who reminded us that actually, as long as we still think we have the opportunity, The imperative for public health in Canada is actually to squash the curve, um, to obliterate the curve, to completely demolish that curve if we can. Here in Nova Scotia, we have 68 cases reported as of today. Um, That's not an impossible dream for us to think that with 68 cases in a population of nearly a million that we could get far enough ahead of this that we could could significantly flatten the curve um, if not obliterate it. The point of doing that is multifold. Certainly, overall, we want to reduce the amount of uh, morbidity and mortality, the damage to humans that this uh, disease will will cause. But in addition to that, we want to avoid overwhelming the the hospital system uh, with disease. And so the horizontal line that you see here is hospital capacity. And what we want to do is keep the curve below the capacity of the hospitals to cope. What you're seeing in italy is uh, the the way that those systems have been incapacitated uh, by this outbreak and so they've not been able to flatten the curve so their curve looks very much more like the one to the left where they've got a large number of cases now not because there was no intervention but because their intervention may have started uh too late for them to slow the spread uh, of the disease and so they've completely overwhelmed their hospital capacity Uh, And that's in part now contributing to the mortality, the death rates that we're seeing in Italy where hospitals can't cope. So our job here is to stay below that hospital capacity line and flatten this curve as much as we can. It means that we will have a longer outbreak, but overall we would have a much less impactful outbreak. To give you a sense of what that longer outbreak means, um, BC I think is now entering something like their 11th week since their first reported case of coronavirus. Uh, Here in Nova Scotia, we are entering our uh, second week. And uh, China's outbreak was sort of from end to end about 10 weeks. So we're already seeing with the Canadian efforts that our curve is longer than the Chinese curve. If you use BC as a starting point, that's good news. How much longer that curve will be remains to be seen. It's going to be measured likely in months, not in weeks. Um, But that is the point of the interventions that we're doing is to flatten that curve as much as possible as possible so that we stay below the hospital intervention, uh, you know, sort of maximum capacity. So all of this is, is, you know, kind of routine for us in public health. This is a science that we know and we see an outbreak like this and we say, okay, so this is another one, but it's not so different than the other ones that we can't cope. And I think in in many ways right now with coronavirus, that's where we are. But what I have found fascinating about this particular outbreak uh, is a few things. Uh, One is, you know, this outbreak is happening at a time in the world where we have never had access to the types of technology that we have now. So the way that information flowed in this particular outbreak to me has been extraordinary. The mapping of the genome of this coronavirus Uh, in the very, very early weeks of the Chinese outbreak is just unprecedented. The sharing of information, the standing up of those uh, real-time dashboards around coronavirus is uh, extraordinary. The fact that we can, to some degree, with some success, it's early days in Nova Scotia, we'll see how it goes, move to virtual platforms for working and managing an outbreak is unprecedented. Um, The number of citizens who are weighing in with ideas and opinions and... um, and uh, theories, some good, some not good, about coronavirus and where it comes from is extraordinary. Uh, and so I don't know what, it, what that all means uh, for how this outbreak ultimately will, um, you know, sort of be recorded by, by comparison to the other ones I've, I've mentioned. But, I, it, you know, of all the things that are similar to me about this pandemic versus the ones I've been in, those are the things that stand out to me right now as being the most uh, different and um, interesting, I guess, is what I would say. So uh, by way of opening remarks, I think I'm just going to leave it there. I hope that's what the moderators intended. Um, And I think it's on to the next panelist.